I really want to do it. I really, <laughs> I really want to bust it out, but I'm not going to. Good morning, everybody. I am Pastor Lori. Thank you for joining us here. If you are here on site, if you are joining us online, um, it's good, I think, I'm going to say it's good to be back teaching. It has been almost a year since I have taught. Can you believe that? I cannot believe that. I know you guys are grateful. It's fine. We have a great teaching team that keeps you from having to listen to me very often. And so you can applaud that if you'd like. Um, Listen, this morning, we're going to continue in our series more and more where we're walking through Philippians together. We've been doing that for a few weeks now, obviously. Um, And a few months ago, when the teaching team that I mentioned, when we met and we were planning for this series, this specific section of scripture is the one that I immediately signed up for. I I saw it, obviously we were walking through the the letter, through the book, and I I was like, that's the one I want. And it's not because of the reason that you might think. It's not because it's a section of scripture that is really very familiar to most of us, but it's because I felt like given the season that I have been in the past several months and am actually still in, in a lot of ways, this was the section of scripture that I knew was going to challenge me personally as I was preparing for it. And I was right. It has um, in good and bad ways. Thank you for the laugh, whoever that was. Um, my hope is that it's going to challenge some of you as well. Um, before we jump into it, I want to give you guys a chance to connect with each other. I know it made you incredibly nervous when Julie Mae didn't ask you to greet each other. I heard a couple of you say it, and I'm going to ease your pain right now. So I'm going to give you guys a question here in the room and online. Um, I want you to talk to your neighbor, and online I want you to post a, a, in the comment, a comment in the chat. Um, I want to ask you this question. Do you typically make your bed after you get out of it in the morning? Like, is this a part of your normal routine? Go ahead. I'm going to give you just a few seconds. My goodness, this was a lively question, apparently. I cannot wait. Ho, ho, ho. Hey, guys. (laughs) I started this. Time out. Come back to me. (laughs) Listen, I promise you'll have all the time you want after the gathering to continue your debate. And actually, you you probably are not even going to need to continue it because I'm about to tell you who's right and who's wrong. Okay? So show of hands or comment in the chat. um, Who here leaves their bed unmade because they're just going to get in it later in the day? Look around the room, people. These are the people that are wrong. These are the people that are crazy and invite chaos into their lives. Listen, I I don't understand you people, okay? So let me give you a little context of why I threw this ridiculous question, not so ridiculous question out there. Um, My growth group and I are going through, we're going through a book together called Liturgy of the Ordinary that explores how we can become just more aware of God's presence through the ordinary routine things in our days, the ordinary parts of our days. And it has sparked some really good conversation like this conversation about making your bed. And our group was mostly split on this issue. 
Now, if it wasn't obvious to you by my very harsh judgment of half of you, I am an obsessive bed maker. I, I am sure that it has something to do with the fact of how I was raised. I mean, we had to make our beds before we could start our day, and it, and it formed, clearly it formed a habit, right? But I truly cannot imagine leaving my bed undone for the day. Like, that is just crazy to me. And I do understand that many of you think that it is a giant, colossal waste of time since you're just going to get back in the bed in 12 or 14 hours. I get that. But I'm telling you, I can't do it. And this book explores another reason beyond just the habit that the author and myself are both bed makers. Beyond just, this is what we've always done since we were little, um, she talks about in the book, and, and I, it resonated with me, that it gives us some sense of order, just a small sense of order before we start our day. And the author mentions that the rest of the room, and this is true in my case, the rest of the room and the rest of our lives, also true in my case, can be in complete, in complete chaos. But it feels good to have this one just rectangle of space in this one room in my house in the, in the start of my day uh, that is in order, that is in some kind of order. And that's, that's me. That made sense to me. And that is part of the reason that I make sense, or excuse me, make the bed every morning. It makes me feel like there's just a little bit of something that I can, probably you would say that I can control but something that seems like it's in order before I start my day. And even something that small and insignificant uh, has been really important to me in this past season. You see, for the very first time in my life, um, over the past years, I have struggled with some very serious anxiety. And there are a lot of reasons for that and, and why that's coming up now in the season of life that I'm in. And I want to assure you all that I am getting the help that I need. I'm talking to my primary care physician. I am talking regularly with a counselor, which I highly recommend to everyone. Um, so I'm doing the things that I know to do to, and that I'm being taught to do. Um, but I'm also trying to focus some attention on what it is that maybe I'm supposed to be learning about myself in this season. And maybe what am I supposed to be learning about some life patterns that may or may not be serving me very well at this point in my life. And one of the ways that I've been doing that is by focusing on a couple of very specific scriptures. And today's text is one of those sections that I have spent a, a significant amount of time with during this season. And like Jackson, who's my boy, who's my son, in case he didn't know that, I'm so proud of him. Um, like he read a few minutes ago, it says right in the verses, do not be anxious. Plain as day, right there. It says, do not be anxious. Cool. <laughs> Done. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. That's so awesome. So if you haven't experienced anxiety personally, I can tell you it don't work like that. It don't work like that. Don't work like that, right? Uh, but like you should do when you're reading any section of scripture, and we talk about this a lot, you need to look at the context of the whole section. 
and the whole letter that Paul wrote, and even look at where that fits into the bigger story of God's children to really understand what it is that he's saying with these words. When Paul is saying to not be anxious, or some translations, you may have heard it said this way, do not worry, he is saying, don't worry about these things that you don't have any control over. And he is giving us a very good reason why we shouldn't, why we don't need to. So we're, this morning, we're going to break down the verses. First, this section, I, I want to give you, again, context. I, this section is the beginning of the closing of his letter to the church at Philippi. He's already given his general greetings. He's thanked them for the work that they've been doing and sharing the good news of Christ. He's reminded them already to keep pressing on that they have not arrived at some or, or completed the mission. He's reminded them uh, their work, not just in spreading the good news, but also the growth for each of them individually is not done. It, it must continue. And now he's bringing it in for a landing by encouraging them to keep all of these things up, okay? And he starts this section by saying to them, rejoice. In fact, he says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So let's pause here for a second because, again, context. It is important to understand where Paul was when he is writing this letter. So what do we know? Where was he? He was in prison. That's right. He was in a Roman prison, unsure of his future, but he was likely expecting death. It's reasonable to think that's what he was expecting to happen. And still he says, rejoice, not once, but twice. It's like he's saying, I said what I said. I understand. I know the circumstances that I am in, and I even understand the circumstances that you are facing there in Philippi while you are trying to maintain your citizenship of heaven rather than of Rome, like Pastor Mike talked about last week. And still, I'm saying rejoice. Now, Paul is not naive, and he's not being flippant about the circumstances. He has thought of everything that could happen, and still, he is reminding possibly himself as much as he is reminding his friends that there is reason to rejoice. What? Does that sound crazy to anybody else? That is not, that is not my go-to mode when I'm facing circumstances like that. But this is consistent for Paul because he's already told them to rejoice a few times in this letter. And he says it in other places as well. Remember, this particular letter is not a scolding like Paul's letters to some of the other churches. This letter is intended to encourage this church to stay focused, to stay on the journey that they're on, and to remind them that they are not yet finished. And he's reminding them that they can and should rejoice for one reason, and that's because of who they are. That's because of whose they are. And being in the thick of the hard circumstances probably doesn't make you immediately jump to rejoicing. I've already confessed that it doesn't me. But, it is, but is it possible that we don't jump automatically to rejoicing because we have forgotten that citizenship that we talked about last week? Is that maybe the reason why that's not where we instantly go? Paul goes on in his letter in verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The section, let your gentleness be evident to all. Again, this is Paul reminding them and all of us of our citizenship and who it is that we represent. And the next sentence says, the Lord is near. Amen. This sentence harks back to, harkens back to the rejoice sentence, but it also leads us into the next sentence about not being anxious. This right here, these four little words is the key to everything we're talking about. We can rejoice because the Lord is near to us. And we also don't have to be anxious because of that same reason, because he is near and available to us. We, as God's children, get to present and and submit everything in every situation to him. Every thought, every feeling, every fear, everything. So what does it mean to submit everything in prayer to him? I think, as I was thinking about this, most of us get the concept of praying to this great vending machine God in the sky where we drop in the prayer request and the vending machine just, the God just gives us the solution like a Snickers bar through the slot, right? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Don't work like that either. Most of us have had that picture, though, of God at one time or another. Uh, So we understand submitting those kinds of prayers, right? But Paul didn't say, hey, when you are in this tough spot, when you are dealing with this major health challenge or this just incredible family crisis, that is when you get to pray to God for the answers. That's not what he says. He says in every situation, Bring your prayer, bring your ask, and also bring your thanks and your joy. Bring all of it to God. Paul is saying, is saying here, bring it all because there is nothing, literally nothing, that we have to hold back from God. And Paul wants his friends to understand that God isn't available only when we're in crisis. He's with us in all of it, in every part of our lives. That means today, If I'm battling anxiety and I'm feeling overwhelmed, he is with me. And that means tomorrow, if I'm relaxing and finding rest on my Sabbath day, he is with me in that also. And that in no way means that the big scary thing will just automatically disappear. It means that understanding that God is with us right-sizes the scary thing, in comparison to the great big God who is for us. Let me say that again. Understanding that God is with us in everything right-sizes the scary thing in comparison to the great big God who is for us. It right-sizes the scary thing in proportion to God. So Paul continues, finally, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul says, regardless of the circumstances you are in and the challenges that I am sure you are facing and that you will face in the future, this is where you need to put your attention. 
Now, from my personal experience, when I am dealing with anxiety, I, am, I become so incredibly focused on myself. I feel like I'm in survival mode and the circumstances almost always appear bigger and worse than they actually are. I have usually taken the real situation that, that, is, that I'm, I'm worried about and played the what if game to the nth degree and catastrophized the whole thing and said, what is the worst possible thing that can happen? That's what I'm gonna focus my attention on. Instead of focusing on what is actually true right now. And Paul is reminding us where our focus needs to stay, always, not just when we're in crisis. Probably because he knows where his mind could be prone to go as he was sitting there in prison, and probably because he knew where his fellow persecuted Christians at the church in Philippi might let their minds go facing the challenges that they're facing. Here's the thing about our brains, our minds. They are going to set themselves on something. You will focus your attention on something. And Paul is saying, hold on to these things. These things that we know to be true. These things that we know to be right and lovely and admirable. Train your mind to think on these things. And this is a practice that I have learned to use when I am in the, in the thick of it with my anxiety. I pause, I breathe, and I ask myself, what do I know to be true right now? What do I know to be right, to be lovely? And then I start by listing the things that I know to be true about God. I believe that God is faithful. I believe that he is bigger than this thing that I'm dealing with. I believe that he is here with me right now in this moment. I believe that he is for me and not against me. I believe that he will never leave me. And I believe that he is good. That doesn't mean that the circumstance feels good or even is good, but it means that regardless of that, regardless of the circumstance, I know and I trust that he is good. Paul's message to the Philippians is the same as it is to us. There will be many, many things vying for our attention. There always are. There will be many lies that say, focus on this bad thing and go ahead and assume that it can only get worse from here. That's the inevitable end to this. And Paul reminds us that isn't who we are and that is not how we are supposed to live. And it's not the way we have to live. I read recently that worry means that we are focused more on the swirling clutter at our own feet than on the bigger world around us. It means that we are so focused on our junk and so deep, deeply entrenched in it that we can't see beyond ourselves and our personal circumstances. And what happens when you look at something super up close? It looks a lot bigger, right? And the only way to right-size it is to zoom out and to take in more of the picture, to see more of it, to have it in the proper proportion, right? It would have been easy for Paul to be consumed by the circumstances of being in prison. It would have been easy for him to be worried about his friends like we talked about, knowing or, or imagining what they might be facing. 
And it would be easy for me to be consumed by this challenge that's going on in my life, that's been going on. But Paul is saying, this is where you need to put your attention. And this is where you need to keep it. I'll give you a story, an example of this. A few years ago, some of you may remember that I shattered my ankle from a fall and had to have surgery. And during that process, I was in a significant amount of pain. I, if you've never experienced it, don't. Please, I don't recommend. It was incredibly painful. Uh, not that I did it on purpose. I should say that. Um, during that process, like I said, I was in a lot of pain. And in that pain, I shrunk my world down so small to believing that everything was about me and what was going on with me. How would I get to where I need to go? How could I do the things that I needed to do for this church or for my family? How would I be able to drive again? How would I be able to walk again? Now, mind you, it was a broken ankle that was reconstructed and it was always intended to heal. I had great medical care. I had wonderful physical therapy. And frankly, in the grand scheme of my life, those months were a relatively short season. But while I was in the thick of it, I had irrational thoughts about whether I would ever even walk again. It was a broken ankle. I didn't lose my leg and I was never in jeopardy of losing my leg. My life wasn't in danger. But I had shrunk my perspective so much and focused so intensely on this injury that I couldn't see a future beyond it, and it paralyzed me emotionally. It seems ridiculous to be standing here on this side of it and talking about it and saying these things, but it seemed very real to me at the time. And that's what happens when we aren't focused on the things that are true. The actual problem was not right-sized, it was magnified because I was looking at it so up close. And the result was I had zero peace. So we're going to jump back to verse 7, which I skipped on purpose a minute ago. Paul says, uh, he's, he's, he mentions, he actually mentions God's peace twice in this section. And I think that there's something to that. I think that that's significant. But in verse 7, he writes, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just before this, Paul is telling us that there is nothing that we can't bring to God. All of our concerns, all of our joys, all of ourselves. And then he says that we will experience a peace that we could never fully understand. When we completely trust the source of peace with all of our beings, then we can experience God's peace, his perfect peace. And his is a peace that surpasses our understanding because in our understanding, peace is based on circumstances, right? If things seem and feel calm, then I will feel peace. But the peace that Paul is talking about here is a peace that goes beyond our understanding, it transcends those circumstances that have not changed. Now, let's be honest here. If it was a piece that I could make sense of, or worse, that I could manufacture myself, would it really be peace? If the piece makes sense to me, then it probably just means that I have somehow managed to change the circumstances. But that's not the piece that Paul is talking about. This is not a peace that you can create, but it is a peace that you can usher in. 
And it is a peace that you can prepare for by paying attention to your thoughts. Is what I'm thinking true? Is it right? What do I know to be true about God? What do I know to be true about who he says I am? Do I believe that he is here with me in this? The team is going to come out. They're going to lead us in a song that we've sung together many times here. And my favorite line from this song is, so I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. When I trust you, I don't have to know the way. I don't have to have the answers. I don't have to know the solution. And I don't have to worry. And I don't have to already be through this hard thing before I experience his perfect peace. A couple weeks ago, a, a group of us were praying out in the lobby. We were praying for a friend who was there with us who was struggling with something. And one of the friends said this, even in the unknown, God you still know. When I don't know, God knows. When you don't know the way, the answer, the solution, God knows. Do you trust him? Let's listen to these words.